Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one thorough page of Talmud a day. Our guest today, you know it, your favorite and mine, our friend and teacher, Rabbi David Bashevkin. Hello. How are you? What a joy to be talking today. I don't have power right now. Uh, it got knocked out from the uh, from the hurricane from where I am right now. But uh, this is my power, and it's giving me a great deal of comfort and joy to be speaking about Talmud with you. We should tell our listeners we record a few weeks in advance, and there indeed has been a major hurricane here in New York or here in the tri-state area. And just as you'd always suspected, the apocalypse begins in New Jersey. Yes, it began in Teaneck will be the opening lines of the uh, Apocalypse 2020 uh, <laughs> song. And you should know that after learning Tractate Erevin, we need to have a different perspective on hurricanes because aside from the loss of power and God forbid the loss of life, one of the things that it really affects are the Erevin, are the actual strings that rope in, in a community. And that's a major question. Can I assume after a hurricane like this that the Erev still stands going into uh, to Shabbos? For a different podcast, perhaps, whenever I see hurricane in a Jewish community, a little part of me is thinking about Maseches Erevin. That's very interesting. What, what is the answer, by the way? Do you need to uh, rush and recheck everything? Normally, we assume that you can rely, if it was checked on Erev Shabbos, you can assume that the legal, what's known as a chazaka, a standing ruling, a sustaining status, will continue for the rest of Shabbos. But when there is a hurricane of this magnitude and you see actual trees lying down, it is usually uproots that sustaining status and you probably should not rely on the fact, if you're normally careful to not carry without an Erev, after a hurricane where it's quite obvious that things may have gotten affected, it's probably best to abstain. But if it's just windy or rainy outside, you probably still can rely on that initial chazaka, that sustaining status, to carry you through Shabbos. But the intersect between hurricanes and tractate Erevin uh, is fairly significant. There's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. Well, then let us intersect right into today's page, Eruvin 23. Look, I'm going to read a portion from the Mishnah. This is a, again, extraordinarily difficult page. I've been struggling with it a little bit, trying to understand exactly the intricacies of the logic here. This is from the Mishnah right in the beginning of the Duff. And furthermore, Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava said, with regard to a garden or a karpef, an enclosed courtyard used for storage, that is not more than 70 cubits and a remainder, a little more, as will be explained below, by 70 cubits and a remainder, and is surrounded by a wall 10 handbreadths high, one may carry inside it as it constitutes a proper private domain. This is provided that it contains a watchman's booth or a dwelling place, or it is near the town in which its owner lives, so that he uses it and it is treated like a dwelling. Uh, elaborate. Why is this important? So it's really interesting because there's a larger discussion about why does the Mishnah turn 
to the dimensions of the Mishkan. That was the temple that we used when we were wandering in the desert. And it has the dimensions that are taken from the temple rather than the dimensions that were taken ultimately from the base Hamigdash that was erected, that was uh, standing on the Temple Mount for a little over 800 years, the first and second temple. And Tosos on the very page asked this question, and his responses actually get into a really interesting discussion, which is whether or not a contemporary synagogue has the status of a residential dwelling in which people could live. And I kind of like that later discussion that the commentaries have based on this very Tosvos on the page because, you know, when we have synagogues now and you look at them, they're always like very fancy and decorated and really nice. But it loses sight of the fact that for centuries, there were many local people in the community who literally would sleep and eat in a shul and were trying to figure out because they were either traveling through town and needed a place to stop on Shabbos or or maybe for one of the holidays. And it led to the question of... Is a shul considered like a residence for the purposes of carrying and purposes of making different types of eruvin? And more than the response to the question, to me, it opens up a light about what the status of the synagogue used to be uh, for really for much of Jewish history. The synagogue didn't just operate as a fancy social center, a fancy JCC to play racquetball. You know, you would come into the synagogue sometimes and see people sleeping on the benches, which, again, not only for security reasons, but I think for decorum, most modern people would bristle at the notion of turning on the lights and seeing people sleeping on the benches. But there's actually a rich tradition of conceptualizing a Beis HaKnesses as a residential area. So as we today sort of strive to reinvent synagogues and turn them again into more than just, you know, the place that you only go to three times a year or never go to, is there anything we could take those of us who don't frequent shuls daily or even weekly, is there anything we could take from this insight to help us reclaim or reimagine the way we think about shuls? I absolutely do. And I think it's almost like conceptualizing the notion of Erevin, which we'll come back to and return to over and over again, which is a shared communal purpose and if not in a literal sense, every synagogue should be erecting Erevin, not as walls to the outside, but a shared common purpose for those who are living inside. And a part of that common purpose that a synagogue needs to provide is ensuring that there is a welcomeness, a residential home-like quality for everyone who is passing through. If there is a guest in shul, I love synagogues that announce and ask if there are any guests in the shul this week who do not have a meal 
please come see so-and-so. And they announce it, whether it's after prayers or with a sign. A lot of shuls do this, and I think it's very rare that people take them up on it. But I think it's a very beautiful thing to announce because it's not just for the travelers. It's a reminder for the people who live there and come week after week that we need to make sure that the boundaries and contours of our community are erected similar like the Erevin, that instead of being a wall, it's a really large doorway for everyone to be entered and to be taken care of with a shared communal set of purpose, goals, warmth, and embrace. Amen to that. Rabbi Beshevkin, thank you so much as ever. Such a pleasure. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Magazine. If you enjoy this show, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes, Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafiomi. I'm your host, Leah Liebowitz. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Paul Ruest. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic and we'll see you again soon.